America is more technologically connected than at any point in history. Yet social capital seems to be in decline, political divisions run deep, communities are crumbling, and the country appears to be more narcissistic and fragmented than ever before. Is the answer to what ails society to be found in the we of we the people? Robert Putnam and Shailen Romney Garrett weigh in on this special episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Robert Putnam is the Malkin Research Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University and author of Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. Shailen Romney Garrett is a writer from Washington, Utah, and a founding contributor to Weave, the Social Fabric Project. Robert and Shailen are co-authors of The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Uh, Robert, and we'll, we'll go by Bob. Uh, Bob and Shaylin, it is great to have you with us today on Therefore What. And uh, Shaylin, I'm going to start with you. Uh, for those of our listeners who may not be as familiar with your work, uh, give us just a little background on Upswing, uh, why it's so important uh, with all the challenges that we're facing today. Sure. So, you know, Americans, as you mentioned, disagree on just about everything these days. But one thing I think that they agree on is to a certain extent, these are the worst of times. Um, the, the survey question that's been asked for many years um, about, about you know, whether America is heading in the right direction or is on the wrong track, more people than ever before uh, in this year said that America was on the wrong track. So America is in a very difficult situation. And that difficult situation is characterized by unprecedented prosperity, educational opportunity, and personal freedom. But extreme income inequality, relentless polarization in the political sphere, a lonely, isolated public that feels disillusioned and disconnected, as well as, as you mentioned, um, you know, a culture that is extremely self-focused, focused on the I. So the question of this book is, how did we get here? How did we get into this situation? And there have been many books written on that topic in the last decade or so um, that you could kind of call them the How America Got Into Such a Mess genre <laughs> book. And, and generally speaking, those books focus on either one aspect of these problems that we've just laid out. Um, and in fact, Bob's famous book, Bowling Alone, is one of those books that focused on the decline of community and connectedness and social capital over the last half century. So A lot of books have focused on one aspect of these problems, and a lot of books focus just on that half century of decline, because Mm -hmm. these things have been getting worse and worse over the last several decades. The upswing, however, aims to take a bit of a broader view. Well, we focus on four different aspects of American society. We focus on economics, politics, society, and culture, and ask what direction have we been moving in on those different measures, not just over the last half century, but over a 125-year period. So by zooming the lens out to look at a bigger, broader swath of history, and by looking at more than just one metric, we're looking at all these different metrics to measure the health of American society, what we see is actually that over the last roughly century, we have gone from a very eye-focused society 
improved toward a more we-focused society. And then in roughly the 1960s, we turned back down to again arrive at a very I-focused society. So the upswing tells the story of America's I, we, I century and asks the question if we can turn the tide and turn the corner again back toward we. Mm, fantastic. And Bob, let me shift over to you now. Uh, you've been steeped in this for uh, for a long time. Uh, and as you've watched that, as you've come together on this uh, particular project and, and looking at that uh, I, we, I curve, uh, how do you see that in, in terms of, uh, we, we love to get to that idea of social capital. Uh, how is the capital, the social capital impacted by that I, we, I curve? And how do we get back to that we? Let me answer the first question quickly, This the um, social capital part. Social capital is an important part of this story. But as Shailin said, it's not the only part of the story, because in this book, uh, she and I have, I'm, I'm a photographer, so I always think in terms of zooming lenses, and we've zoomed way back to look not just at social capital, but at economics and, yeah. and politics and culture as well. And as she said, we've zoomed way back to look at the last 125 years and what that, when you get the whole focus on that whole period, the last century and a bit, what you see is, yes, it's true that we've been declining since the, uh, over the last half century. And many people wonder, well, what caused the decline? But actually, we think that the more interesting question is not what caused the downturn in the 60s, but what caused the upturn in around 1900? Because what we show in the book is that there are astonishing parallels between the plight of America today and the plight of America at the end of the 19th century, what was called the Gilded Age. In that period, America was also, just like today, actually it's, it's stunning how similar are the two periods around 1900 and, and, and now, extremely unequal economically, extremely polarized politically, extremely isolated socially, and extremely narcissistic or self-centered in cultural terms. And so we think the more relevant turning point for us today is not the, the change from a, a we society to an I society in the 60s, but rather the change from an I society to a we society back mm. around 1900. Because what happened... The last time we were in a pickle like this was, it was called the Progressive Era, and a group of people called the Progressives basically turned the direction of the country. I don't mean overnight, but they pivoted from moving ever more in a, uh, an I direction, as we are now, to changing the whole trajectory of the country and moving in a, in a we direction over the, over the next 70 years. And we think that period is actually the one that's most relevant to us today, because if we want to get out of a pickle just like that one, well, they did. And we can look back. So the, basically the purpose of the book, and this is what the subtitle says, we're focused not on the downturn since the 60s, but the upswing, which was how America came together a century ago and how we can do it again now. That's the basic argument of the book. Oh, fantastic. And Shaylin, let's dive right into that in terms of what what was it that caused that swing towards we, uh, again, as we talked about from the Gilded Age, uh, where the very narcissistic moment uh, to this this great uh, we society uh, that emerged following that. So what are some of the things that we should be looking at, whether it's in the economics or uh, in the culture, the the politics? Uh, What should we be looking for? What were the lessons coming out of that age? 
Well, it's important to point out that this is an incredibly statistically driven book. It's not just a historical narrative. It's a statistical narrative. And of course, Bob is, you know, a world famous data scientist. And so um, this book is incredibly grounded in scores and scores of hard measures that track these trends that we're talking about. And so when you look at trends like that, the question often becomes, well, if you can identify the leading variable, right, if you can identify the thing that statistically started moving in the right direction first, well, then maybe you have a story about what we should focus on today, because you have kind of this silver bullet solution, right? And it's interesting that you mentioned economics first, because a lot of people, particularly social scientists, assume that the thing that's going to turn first is economics. There's this kind of generally Marxist view of history, I think, that a lot of social scientists have, which is that if you kind of fix the economics and you get things moving in a more equal direction, then people, you know, start turning toward each other more and and all the stuff, all the other stuff sort of comes along with it. Well, what's so fascinating about this data is actually that when we look back at that period, when we turned from I to we, from the Gilded Age to the Progressive Era, it turns out that economics is actually a lagging indicator, Mm. meaning that we turned toward greater and greater economic equality last, not first. So there was something else driving this move from I to we. And what it looks like, both in the terms of kind of reading the tea leaves of the data, but also from the historical record, it looks like what really drove this change was a moral awakening. You had a culture of the Gilded Age, which was, what historians have called social Darwinism. The idea that the survival of the fittest was a good way to organize society, that society was just sort of one giant competition, and there are winners and losers, and that's just how it is. That was sort of the cultural mindset of the time. And you had coming out of evangelical Protestantism a counter-movement called the social gospel. It came onto the scene and said, you know, this whole social Darwinism thing, I don't think that this is true to our first principles and to our core values as as America, as religious people. And it started in the religious sphere, but it became a much more broad cultural movement. And it really questioned the idea that society was a competition and replaced it with the idea that society should be measured by how it takes care of its most vulnerable, by its focus on duties rather than rights, our responsibilities to one another. And that prompted a different way of thinking about everything, the role of government, the role of citizens, what the economy should look like. And there were a lot of changes that came out of that moral awakening. Now, there were a lot of other aspects to the progressive era that we could talk about, but that's a really important one. And and going back to your question about social capital, that moral awakening this largely youth-driven, very, very young group of reformers. Most of the progressive era reformers were 30 years old or younger when they were doing their most important work. So you had these young people who were having these sort of moral moments that were driving them to do something different in society. And largely what they did was to create new ways of bringing people together. They were in a society that was hyper-individualistic, that had changed from the sort of small-town farm life of the pre-industrial era into the big, busy, anonymous cities of the industrial era. And they realized that they literally had to invent new ways of bringing people together, and particularly bringing people together across lines of difference. And so these progressives 
really created new ways of what they called association building. That's kind of an antiquated term today, but association was the term they used for it. And they created vast new stores of social capital, which we know from Bob's work, social capital fuels a lot of other good things in a society. And so creating these new ways of bringing together face-to-face ties was a huge part of what fueled this upswing and this turn from I to we. Oh, that's uh, that's fascinating, Bob. I want to I want to keep going down this economic thing. Uh, I, I loved what Shailen said that the economics was sort of the lagging indicator, not the leading indicator. Uh, we see so many who uh, in our society today, and a lot in our our politics, uh, that if we just you know do a, a guaranteed wage or payments for this, that, and the other, that uh, that then we'll come together as a society, and the and the data just doesn't uh, bear that out, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, let me be clear. We think that economic equality or economic inequality matters a lot. Yes. And the fact that we are now in probably the period of the greatest inequality, economic inequality in American history, is a big deal and needs to be corrected. So it does need to be corrected. But as you say, what we discovered when we began our excavation, so to speak, our archaeology of the last time we turned the corner, that a movement toward greater um, economic equality, economics was the caboose, not the, not the engine. And it means you've got to work on a lot of other things, in part because you, in the end you do also want to try to have a more egalitarian distribution of income and wealth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bob, I want, to, I want to stick with you for a second on this. Uh, you know, we're uh, broadcasting and recording today uh, from, from Utah, which is a uh, a very upwardly mobile place in the universe with a, a strong free market economy and strong institutions of civil society that, that seem to foster some of those things in terms of upward mobility. As you continue to look at the, the data past and present, uh, are there some of these other factors that we should be looking at a little more closely uh, as we look at how we uh, try to, to get to this upswing? Well, yeah, let me let me say a little bit specifically, there are, there are other lessons, not just Utah lessons, about the progressive era, but, I, I, but Utah is a very special place. And so let me say a little bit about that. And you can't talk about Utah without talking about um, uh, LDS, the, and the, the Mormon uh, traditions and influence in um, Utah today and in the past. I should say, I'm not a Mormon. Shailene is a Mormon. And we both agree that and, and, of course, we both understand, and all of your listeners understand, Mormonism is a, is a complicated phenomenon. It's not a simple thing. But the relevant point here, I guess, is that for whatever reason, the Mormon culture or the Mormon faith has long emphasized community. We. All, all long emphasized the we. Now, there's a you know, in a second, we may want to talk about, well, who all is in that we from the Mormon point of view, but there's no question that Mormonism encourages people to think of themselves as responsible for one another. And that, that's a huge advantage. And as you know, Senator Lee, in his uh, capacity as the uh, chairman of the uh, Joint Economic Committee in Congress, has led a, a very important study of I would say, of we, of, of social capital. And that is partly a matter of morality and, and, um, and culture, and, and in that sense it, it chimes perfectly with what Shailen was saying earlier on about how important we see 
and not just in Utah, how important we see uh, a moral awakening as being to the last time we, we got out of the pickle that we're currently in. Now, I, I do think that's an important part of the, of the success story in, um, in uh, Utah, a very, very important part of the success story in Utah. At some point, it may also be worthwhile to think about, well, are there, are there downsides to that culture, and in particular, how we gets defined. And, and, and this is not just a matter of Utah. Indeed, one of the big lessons that we talk about about the progressive area in general which we generally, which we laud, is that it also raises the question of who is we? Well, who is included? And Chilin has done a lot of work on that, not just in Utah, but of course she also lives in Utah. And I would feel a little more comfortable if she began talking a little bit about who is we? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and uh, I was going to say, Shaylin, I'll give you two minutes for rebuttal on anything Bob said. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we know, we know, we know Utah has lots of things we got to, we got to get better. And we got to, we got to fix. But Shaylin, let's have you go down that path just a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, what does that mean? Uh, what do we need to watch out for? And, uh, and again, how do we, how do we learn from the past and start to apply as we move it forward? Well, I think there's a couple of interesting lessons here. One actually comes from the period when we turned from we back. That happened in the mid-1960s, according to the data. You know, all of these trends were moving in the right direction for 60 to 70 years, going from roughly 1910 to roughly the mid-1960s. And then we did this sort of societal backflip. And in a very short period of time, all of these different indicators, scores and scores of measures we're talking about here, all turned in a downward direction. And when you look actually, again, going back to culture, when you look at some of the cultural harbingers of that turn, when you look at the period of the 1950s, what you see is people were really starting to get clear about some of the costs of conformity. Mm. Because oftentimes when you have a strong sense of community, what comes with it is a strong mandate for conformity, right? And so in the 1950s, you started seeing the rebel without a cause and catcher in the rye and uh, the organization man, you know, all of these sorts of critiques of that hyper culturally consolidated kind of hyper uh, conformist push that came along with this we period. Right. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, what we did instead of questioning that and sorting that out while keeping our strong sense of we, we did a backflip and moved in a hyper-individualistic direction. So the question, of course, becomes how do you have a strong sense of we without the sense that there's only one right way to be within that we? And I think that's a huge question for Mormonism specifically to deal with. I think that is the question for Mormonism going forward. So that's one piece that I'd like to bring up. Another piece that, of course, we have to bring up is simply racial and gender inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. So Bob alluded to this, but the, the, the progressives who, of course, were without a doubt responsible for essentially writing the ship of American society in the early 1900s, they were nonetheless racist, not exclusively, but basically and so they were having this moral awakening. Nonetheless, their circle of moral concern simply didn't extend to people of color. Mm. And the results of that were that a lot of the structural inequality that we're dealing with today 
in a sense, was sort of knit into the progressive programs that came out of this period, right? And the way I like to think of it is sort of like these reformers just sort of kicked the racial reconciliation question down the road. And when we see the story of what happened in the 1960s, of course, the 60s was this moment when we were at the peak of our we-ness. Not the peak in the sense of how how high it could have gone, but the peak in the sense of how high historically it went. It's no accident that during that peak was when we had this sort of fragile national consensus around passing civil rights legislation. However, in the wake of passing that legislation, which was, you know, extremely popular, a, a robust majority of Americans supported it. Nevertheless, in the wake of passing that legislation, when it came time to actually sort of share the pie and get into the project of um, integration, there was a huge white backlash against it. And I believe that that was largely because we never actually did the work, the heart work Mm. of racial reconciliation. We did the legal work of finally breaking down the sort of de jour segregation. But I don't think that we ever really created a true inclusive we. And so whatever we we would hope to spark today has to take at its core, at its center, these two questions. How can we create a we that is fully inclusive of difference? And how do we create a we that does not require conformity in order for it to be robust? And those are big, big questions. But I think they're the most important questions that we can ask ourselves as Americans today. Uh, I, I think that's so uh, so vital that uh, inclusive we without uh, the the conformity uh, or even the cancel culture that seems to be playing a really interesting uh, framing in that as well. Uh, Bob, let me go back to you for a second. On uh, this is a question I wanted to ask you for years now, uh, and, and that is this idea of kind of the American rugged individualism. Uh, and I'm just curious as to how that kind of mentality or or whether that's more myth and legend than reality, uh, how does that play into all of this? Are we always destined to go back to the eye or is there a space for that rugged individualism in the way that, uh, that Shaylin has said that we can have that inclusive we uh, without always bailing out and going back to our uh, very rugged individual I? Well, that's a great question. And let me first of all think about the West. We think about Often, when we think about the opening of the West, and of course for most Americans that's, you know, it's captured in the mythology of movies, we think of the lone cowboy, uh, Gary Cooper or somebody, riding across the West, and, you know, on his horseback and and opening the West, and, and there certainly was, without a doubt, an important element of that rugged individualism not only in, in, the, front, in the opening of the frontier, but also in, the, in American culture. But, you know, actually, I don't, I don't need to say this uh, when I'm speaking to folks in Utah. An equally important symbol, actually an even more important symbol of the opening of the West was the wagon train. And the wagon train meant opening up the West not as one isolated individual, one isolated cowboy, but as a group of people moving together. And that's a we. And what I'm trying to say is the we is at least as important an element in American culture as the I, I would say actually slightly more important. And, you know, you go back to the first person to notice the importance of community in America, Alexis de Tocqueville, the brilliant 
French, uh, well, I don't know, observer, I guess I would say, who came to America in the 1830s and talked about how America was, Americans were constantly forming associations, and, and all of us who in the succeeding years and centuries have talked about the importance of community, all of us are indebted to Tocqueville. He's thought of as the original communitarian, because he saw how important cooperation was to Americans. And remember, he was visiting America in the 1830s and 1840s. So he, he, even at that stage, he could see, and he was telling his European readers for whom he was writing, especially the French for whom he was writing, look, th- America is amazing. They, they're, they're a success because they cooperate so much. But at the same time, Tocqueville, in the very same writings, invented the term individualism. So he was aware at the very origin of our thinking about community in America, that America also was a very individualistic place. And the term he used to reconcile those two halves of American culture was self-interest rightly understood. That was a term he used. That is, Americans did follow their self-interest, but self-interest rightly understood, which means you also had to worry about other people's interest. And so you're, you're right that individualism is an important part of American history and culture. It's not necessarily, and this is to Tocqueville's point, it's not necessarily always in opposition to worrying about community. And indeed, I guess I would say, back to Utah again, what's most interesting about Utah, of course individualism plays an important part in, in the culture of Utah. Sure it does. But actually, what's most distinctive about Utah, and the Utah advantage, so to speak, is the very strong importance of, of community, as embodied, frankly, in those wagon trains that finally settled around Salt Lake. Oh, that's... I would just also add to that that, you know, I'm the descendant of handcart pioneers, you know, and so that wagon train is not something that's abstract for a lot of Utahns, right? It's something that is in their genealogy, and it's and it's a story that gets told and retold of all of the times when care was given and received and, and by those people crossing the plains. And so that's, you know, speaking of mythology like that, it's not a myth for us. It's very much knit into kind of the collective history that we share. So that's, a, that's just an interesting connection to make as well. Oh, I, I love that. And I, and I actually love this idea that, uh, that both the rugged individualism uh, and that uh, connection and community are actually compatible principles. Uh, there, there's so much in our world today that we just, you know, have an either or, or we have these fake fights and false choices. Uh, but seeing those right. as compatible principles, I, I, I think, is is wonderful. The only thing I would add to that point, Boyd, which is certainly true, is that American history is always a kind of a, I wouldn't say tug of war, but a back and forth between the individual and community. But sometimes that, that really gets out of whack, that balance. Yes. It was very much out of whack in the, in the Gilded Age, and it's very much out of whack now. Even if you think, as I do, that individual is an important part of American tradition, I think way, we're way out of balance now. We're, it, that's how we've got this extreme polarization, the extreme isolation, and the extreme uh, inequality. Mm, absolutely. Therefore, what? Well, I'd, I'd keep both of you all day for this conversation, but uh, we're going to get to our, our closing point, and the, the program is called Therefore What? for a reason, uh, and we are to the Therefore What? moment. And so I'm going to ask each of you, and we'll we'll start with you, Shaylin, uh, 
people have been listening for the last 25 or 30 minutes here and and it's the therefore what uh after people have listened to this after they've read uh this great work that the two of you have put together what do you hope people think differently what do you hope they do differently uh, as a result of listening today you know one thing is that i think a mistake that we often make is that we're always looking for some charismatic political leader to come and save us, you know, to lead the way forward into a brighter American future. But again, harking back to that period from which we take our lessons in the upswing, the the progressive era, again, charismatic political leadership was a lagging indicator. We often think of Teddy Roosevelt as characterizing the progressive era, but, you know, he came along later in that story, and he really built upon the work of grassroots innovators, organizers, activists, you know, the work that they have been doing for decades. And so what I really hope that people understand is that whether or not we enter another upswing depends entirely upon what we choose to do. The last upswing was driven by citizen innovation, grassroots association building, grassroots solution making. And that's what we believe will happen again. And so a lot of it just depends on whether we're going to get in there and roll up our sleeves. But I would also say that, as we've mentioned before, it's not just about what we do. It's about who we're going to be. Mm. And there is a lot of heart work, not hard work, although it is hard work, <laughs> heart, heart-centered work that we need to do as a society to get back into a place of focusing on what we can do for one another and how that is our greatest strength. And and we need to be making sure that when we think about who is included in that, that it is fully inclusive. And so I would just hope that people would begin to realize that their own moral narrative matters and that that moral narrative will motivate this upswing or not. Uh, fantastic. Uh, and it is, uh, we always say on this program that it's community and culture that lead and the, the politicians follow. They're, they are the lagging indicator. Love that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bob, uh, final thought from you. Uh, uh, therefore, what? What do you hope people think differently? What do you hope they do differently as a result? Well, let me uh, explain, Boyd, first of all, uh, that you know this, that this book, The Upswing, that we've been talking about this whole time, was off in print at the publisher more than a year ago now, right? before the virus, before the politics of this year, before the economic catastrophe of this year, and so on. And so we wrote the book not having a clue as to what was just about to happen. And the thing that I think is really quite astonishing is that it turns out the book is even more relevant now than it was when we finished it. Um, and that's relevant very much to the question of, of practical lessons. What lessons did we draw, uh, you know, a year ago before we even knew where we, were, where we would be right now? And there are a number of those. I, I want to just quickly highlight a couple. One of the things that we learned from the last uh, upswing was the importance of grassroots activity that change was not a top-down, was a bottom-up phenomenon. And I think that's even more relevant now. I mean, I think we all know what our national politics is like at the moment, but I think the hopeful sign right now is that you can begin to see the seeds 
of renewal in the country at the grassroots, below the level at which we're so incredibly polarized nationally that we can't even talk to one another. And actually, I think, I don't want to be too political here, but I think you can see some of that in the debate about uh, the Biden, um, you know, the 1.7 or whatever it is, 1.9 stimulus package, which is, you know, people in Washington can't agree about it at all. But when you get down to the local level, people say, yeah, well, okay, we can, let's work together on this. So that's one example. Another example, really important, Shilin said earlier that when we looked back at that earlier period, we saw the importance of youth, that it was a youth, the turning in that last period, the pivot from a, a society that was moving ever more towards um, I to a society instead that was, began to move towards we. That was done by young people. And I don't have to say much more than that to call attention to the fact that the great enormous increase in youth voting this year is a very hopeful sign for many, many, many reasons, but not least because turnout among young people was higher now than it's ever been in American history, except for the, except for the period of the, of the progressive era. And, and, and whatever you think about global warming, uh, Greta Thun, this, this young woman from Sweden, I guess, is kind of leading the way on a mass mobilization to try to fix issues of, of global warming. Or, again, whatever you think about, about gun control, the kids from Marjorie um, Douglas High School, if I got the right name, uh, in, yes. in Florida, those kids, they're leading the, the charge nationally. Now, I don't want to get too much involved in the content of their reforms. We could disagree about that. But what I'm trying to say is there are very hopeful signs today you know, a year and more after we finished this book, that we could be on the verge of a- another upswing. You know, I don't want to quite say that it, we're not in the predict- prediction business. We're certainly not in the prediction business. But uh, our, our consideration of what, where we are right now, the plight of America today, February 22, 2001, it suggests, a kind of an optimistic outlook. I don't, of course, it's not, you know, nothing in, in this world is determined. As Shailen just said, it's up to us. But uh, you can see some signs that we may be at the front edge of a pivot. It won't happen overnight. Of course, it didn't happen overnight before. I'm not saying, you know, well, the, the, you know, the, the, we're going to have a, a perfect world in another six months. Not at all. But I do think we, and this is the hopeful note, and it, it goes directly to what Shailin said. I think we're at a p- position in our own history right now, I mean, late February 2021, where we could be, if we work at it, at the beginning of, a, of another upswing. That's the hopeful argument of this book. Uh, love that. And again, the uh, the book is The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Uh, these are practical lessons. These are principled lessons. Uh, and they all drive towards that pivot of uh, how we move it forward. Uh, Shailen Romney-Garrett and uh, Bob Putnam, thank you so much for joining us on There For What today. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thanks a lot, Boyd. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is... Therefore, what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. 
This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What? Thank you.